Welcome to Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hi, Marie Claire. Thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctors Corner. Thank you so much for having me, Dana. So for our listeners um, who haven't met Marie Claire before or um, asked her for advice before, this episode has been kindly sponsored by MIGA or Omega. And Marie Claire is one of uh, Omega's senior solicitors and she used to be an ICU nurse as well. Uh, She's here today to talk to us about mandatory reporting. Now, this topic often makes a lot of junior doctors squirm uh, at the sound of those words, but it is a very relevant topic to cover. Uh, But before we dive into this very juicy topic, uh, Marie Claire, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So I've been a lawyer now, I think about 16, 17 years. Um, As you mentioned earlier, I used to be a clinical nurse specialist in intensive care. Uh, I worked at um, the Prince of Wales Hospital. That's where I trained in Sydney. Uh, and I've worked at North Shore and North Shore Private. Uh, I did my law degree at um, the University of New South Wales whilst I was working in ICU. Uh, And then I went to work for national insurers um, after that. Uh, I then uh, did my master's in health law uh, and went to London for five years where I was general counsel at the Royal Free Hospital Uh, NHS trust. So I've been a practitioner on the ground as a nurse. Uh, I've been a legal advisor to big hospitals. The Royal Free at that time had 6,000 staff. Uh, So I managed all of their legal issues. Uh, And then when I came back to Australia, I um, was asked by MIGA to run the Eastern States legal team. So my Uh, jurisdiction primarily at MIGA is Queensland, New South Wales and the ACT, but we have a very large team which looks after our clients nationally. So my day-to-day is taking calls from all sorts of um, doctors, from um, junior doctors that we'll be focusing on today to um, specialists in private practice And MIGA also has the federal government contract for privately practicing midwives. So we we receive all sorts of interesting um, notifications from our clients and questions in day-to-day practice. And that's what um, we're here for and everybody's uh, medical defense organization is there for. Now, before we go into the nitty gritty and interesting stuff about mandatory reporting, do you mind if we just do a very broad and basic cover just as a refresher for junior doctors who haven't you know studied law and ethics since they finish you know their final exams in medical school so can you please mm-hmm. um, take us through it so we um, as practitioners um, so that includes um, doctors medical students nurses midwives psychologists um, anybody who is regulated under APRA So when you have to fill in all that paperwork for your registration, the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law encompasses all of those practitioners and students. And that is the 
um, legislative framework under which we practice. And when I say we, I mean medical practitioners, just to make it easier. So there is a section of that act nationally. Um, each state and territory has slight variations in the act, but there is the umbrella of the national law, and that's how I'll refer to it today. There is a section, which is section 140, which defines notifiable conduct. And that's when we talk about making a mandatory notification to the regulator, that is APRA, uh, when one or more of four things may occur. So it's practicing whilst intoxicated by alcohol or drugs, engaging in sexual misconduct in connection with practice, placing the public at risk of substantial harm in the practitioner's practice of the profession because that practitioner has what's called an impairment. And lastly, placing the public at risk of harm by practicing the profession in a way that constitutes a significant departure from acceptable professional standards. And I know that all sounds like a lot of legal talk, but it's really simple. It's those four things that would constitute what we would call a mandatory notification to the regulator. Now, the whole point of this uh, podcast was to talk about there's some recent changes, but I wanted to bring up perhaps a hypothetical scenario. Let's say hypothetically, there is a junior doctor who has a mental health condition. And I have actually um, seen posts made on Facebook anonymously by junior doctors in the past uh, about whether or not it's a good idea to seek treatment. And, you know, they in themselves start to recognize that they have some signs and symptoms of um, depression or anxiety. I have seen some interesting advice um, when it comes to these sorts of posts from other doctors um, around whether or not it's a good idea for the junior doctor to seek treatment or help or how they go about it even, you know, like, for example, nope, it's not a good idea for you to get a mental health care plan because then it's going to go on your record and you're going to be reported um, for it. You know, it makes it very official that you have depression, that you need to be treated by paying for it privately so that nothing gets recorded, things like that. So um, can you please talk us through, um, you know, what are the implications of, you know, A, not getting treated and B, getting treated? And what does this mean for the junior doctor's um, GP? And also what does this mean for the junior doctor's workplace, you know, like the hospital environment? Do they need to be aware that this junior doctor um, you know, is uh, has depression and is being tre treated for it if they decide to go ahead and get seek treatment. Okay, it's really important that you've asked this question, Dana, and I think it's probably the most important thing that we need to talk about today because I think we'll split mandatory notification into two scenarios, and this for me is the most important. So. Uh, there's been recent changes um, to bring the legislation for uh, mandatory notification for treating practitioners into line. The only exception um, is Western Australia, and we'll talk about that separately. Um, but what the recent changes um, that came into force on the 1st of March uh, 2020 have uniformly clarified is that the threshold 
for a treating practitioner, whether that's a general practitioner, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or anybody else who is registered with APRA, the threshold for notification when treating a practitioner is extremely high. And the threshold is so high that they, they must form a reasonable belief that that person's impairment or health condition for um, whatever you want to call it, disease, it must place the public or be at risk of placing the public, that is generally patients, um, at risk of substantial harm. Dr. Kim Jenkins, who is a psychiatrist, has a fantastic video on APRA and we'll post the links um, to the podcast notes. Uh, but she, in her interview, makes it very, very clear that a any practitioner approaching a general practitioner or a psychiatrist for assistance with uh, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, uh, whatever um, mental um, struggles that that practitioner is experiencing does not in itself constitute any need for that uh, practitioner to breach their patient's confidentiality uh, by either informing an employer or hospital and indeed APRA. Anxiety and depression, as we well know, there's been so much literature, junior doctors, senior doctors, lawyers, anybody in, in um, roles that require high functioning at, at high pace, their reports of anxiety and depression and uh, insomnia, for example, or alcohol misuse or drug misuse is extraordinarily high. It's, it's a substantial percentage of our specialties that report difficulty um, completing their day-to-day -day tasks without the anxious thoughts or the sleepless nights or the fatigue or um, the, the feeling of self-loathing. That does not necessarily place patients at risk. Mm -hmm. Most of us, uh, in inverted commas, function extremely well at work despite having um, all of these underlying issues. And as, of course, we all know, there are appropriate treatment remedies in place, which your practitioner will either put you on a mental health care plan if he or she feels it's appropriate, commence medication, recommend psychotherapy, recommend counselling. Um, that does not mean you are not able to do your job. It means you are human. It is much better. It is in your best interest and your family, friends and patients' best interest that you seek help as soon as you possibly can so that it doesn't transform into something down the track that might trigger a mandatory notification, such as turning up to a hospital shift completely intoxicated because you've just let your anxiety and depression get out of control because you've been too fearful to approach a practitioner for fear of what you've discussed, of, of being reported. Uh, so I'd urge your listeners to go to the APRA website, listen to, there are four videos. I think Dr. Kim Jenkins is very powerful when she says, you know, this is, it has to be very significant mm -hmm. um, for me as a, a practitioner, i.e. Dr. Jenkins, in her words, to, to notify. And she states in that interview that she can only think of one or two times in her very long established career treating 
doctors and other practitioners where she's felt the need uh, to notify the regulator. And that um, Dana comes down to the level of insight that the practitioner has and the level of engagement in the proposed treatment plan that the general practitioner or psychiatrist or psychologist is recommending. So where we, we, we delve into territory where the treating practitioner becomes concerned is denial. Um, I don't have a problem. I don't have any issues. Um, you know, yes, my hospital has spoken to me, but there's no problem. Or the really good example that Dr. Jenkins gives um, in her practice was some years ago, she was treating a registered nurse who um, clearly had some quite severe mental health issues and was extremely paranoid um, that the doctors in her department were deliberately trying to poison patients. So she would um, encourage patients not to take their medications or to remove their medications. So you can see very clearly for Dr. Jenkins as her treating psychiatrist, it was evident by her patient's own admission that she was placing patients at risk of harm. So she obviously had a, a mental disorder that the psychiatrist was having to manage, but she had to, she had to make that notification because clearly she couldn't have that nurse return to the workplace. Merely making the notification is making a notification. It is ultimately in the hands of the regulator as to next steps, but the threshold is that high. Yep. The second example she gives is, I had a doctor who um, was highly functioning at work, just feeling fatigued, burnt out, um, presented to her having had taken two days off, um, said, I feel like I need some help. Um, uh, he was prescribed some antidepressants uh, on the spot. Uh, he um, agreed to attend psychotherapy. Um, he then took two weeks off work just to regroup uh, and was re-attending his appointments uh, with Dr. Jenkins. And Dr. Jenkins is very clear when she says, there was absolutely no way that I felt I needed to make a notification to APRA. There was insight. Um, he was uh, very happy to take her advice as to what the next steps were. He'd removed himself from his stressful workplace. Uh, he stated to her that there'd been no concerns raised by anyone at work. He just knew that he, he was feeling burnt out. Um, and often it, 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 uh, my clients will tell me it's family and friends that say, I think you might need to go and see your doctor because you're snappy, you're not yourself you're not sleeping. It's often those types of triggers that will hopefully encourage a practitioner to seek some advice. But I hope those two examples that Dr. Jenkins um, explains in her video, which we'll, we'll put the link up, as I said, um, sort of separates out what we're talking about here and how high that threshold needs to be. Um, ARPA is there to um, help practitioners navigate this really difficult issue, given that lawyers can't tell practitioners what to do when it comes to their patients. Um, but APRA might say, well, is that all you have? Is there any other way we could get some information? Um, but, you know, sometimes, Dana, if the practitioner, and particularly if they're a very experienced practitioner, 
Um, you know, often it's they have to follow their gut. And if they are concerned that patients might be at risk at the end of the day, the law is there to protect everybody, primarily the public, but also practitioners, which I think is a good segue into what happens if somebody makes a mandatory notification? What does the regulator do? Hmm. So I would say, particularly in relation to junior doctors, the point at which we see in practice where in the rare event there is a notification, as I said earlier, it's usually in relation to drug and alcohol misuse, and that's not partying outside of work. That, that does not constitute a mandatory notification under the national law, and the guidelines are very, very clear about that. If a practitioner is turning up to work intoxicated, and that can that can include being very hungover, um, you know, not drinking on the way to work, although um, that, that certainly has occurred, um, but turning up clearly intoxicated is generally where we would find the junior doctors being reported or um, a very sudden deterioration in mental health at work, which is, which is an obvious deterioration or psychotic episode, for example. Um, so that's probably where we would see it most in the junior doctor space. So if we say that the, a mandatory notification has been made in that scenario, what then flows is a very collegiate, safe path to helping that practitioner either get back to practice as soon as possible and maintain their practice or be um, prevented from practising until they are stable, which is not ticker box exercises. It's, it is a very holistic, personal approach with the assistance of that junior doctor's medical defence organisation to ensure that they are getting help from treating practitioners. It does involve um, medical reports um, uh, from treating practitioners. So in terms of confidentiality, it's a bit of a, well, you want to, you want to stay practicing, we want to help you practice, but we are going to be, we need to be reassured that you're okay. And the only way we can do that is by way of an independent um, report or ongoing reports from your treating practitioner. And Dana, the doctors that I've represented in this situation are, I mean, I, I can't even think of one example where my client has said, no, I'd rather just not be registered anymore. Of course, you're you're going to want to engage to stay to keep your registration because it's obviously very difficult to get back if it's taken away. So we um, an MDO's role is to assist the communication with the regulator to um, to guide our clients through the process, which is initially a medical process. Um, the only real legal aspect is um, just advising. The regulator, if, for example, the doctor has been suspended from practice from hospital, there is a section under 130 of the national law that you must tell um, the, um, the regulator if your right to practice has been withdrawn from any institution. So we would assist with letters and, and all of that sort of thing. But primarily the goal, the purpose is to make sure that the doctor is looked after, that they receive help and treatment. Um, that they're engaged in the process 
that the employer, if they are employed, is engaged and assists. And um, you'd be quite surprised at to the as to the lengths that, for example, hospitals will go to in order to help those junior doctors. For example, signing up to part of your conditions to go back to work after perhaps you've had some rehab or some um, um, very intense therapy would be that um, they're breathalyzed every morning um, before they shift. And I have a number of doctors who have that condition on their practice currently in the hospital. It's difficult and it's complex and it's, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of work from the hospital to make that happen. But certainly I have clients who have that condition on their practice so that they can go to work every day because, as we know, that forms such a huge part of your self-worth. And we don't want doctors... Um, or any practitioner, the regulator doesn't want practitioners deteriorating further because of their sense of their identity, everything they've worked for has been stripped away from them because that creates a greater psycho, um, psychological risk of harm. So the regulator will go to great lengths to assist doctors to remain in practice, even when they have quite a significant mental impairment, which is excellent, which is what we want because it keeps everybody safe. So to clarify, would that mean that um, the whole treat investigation and treatment process, your employer would know about all your conditions and the reports between um, your treating specialists and APRA back and forth and all of that? Does that mean that everything gets put out in the open? Or would you need to tell your employer anyway if you were seeking help in the first place? If we just stay in the mandatory notification space just for a, a second so I can clarify what happens when the regulator is involved. Mm. If you are suspended from practice, um, any anywhere you practice will be informed by the regulator and that is why you have seven days in which to notify ARPA if you have had your right to practice at any hospital or institution taken away. That's to protect the public so that you say, well, I only work at X hospital. Well, I'm doing sneaky shifts somewhere else. Mm. That's not appropriate. So if conditions, if you're suspended from practice or conditions are placed on your practice, um, the regulator has the right and does inform your place of practice of those conditions or that suspension. Okay. Um, if there are health conditions on your registration, they are private. So on your ARPA registration online, if you have health conditions, it simply states that conditions exist, but they are not in the public domain. So for example, in New South Wales, one of the conditions might be that you see a medical council appointed psychiatrist regularly, that you undergo hair screening, every three months that you undergo thrice weekly urine screening, for example, if we're talking about a drug or alcohol impairment, um, that is not on the public website. Those conditions are shared with the employer right. because the employer needs to know that there are conditions on their employee's practice. But in terms of all the reports, they stay with the council, for example, in New South Wales, with the medical council, or with OHO or ARPA in Queensland, for example, or the medical boards in various states and territories. And the councils or boards in each state and territory are charged with 
managing um, that process. All the hospitals or employers need to know is that there are conditions and that there have been no, or if there are changes or there are no changes, they are simply informed. What usually occurs in terms of communication between the hospitals and the boards in each state and territory, more often than not, a supervisor is required. So uh, if, the, if the practitioner is still practising 99 times out of 100, one of the conditions will be that they need to be supervised under various categories. And again, I won't bore you with that because it's quite detailed and it's, um, it's very legalistic. But it might be, for example, that the practitioner must meet with their nominated and board approved supervisor once a week. That practitioner needs to um, send a report to the medical board as to their progress. And usually there's a pro forma. Basically, have there been any concerns, any lateness to work, any signs of deterioration, that sort of thing. The treating practitioners um, and the council appointed practitioners, for example, will, will inform privately the council of how the practitioner is traveling mentally. The hospital doesn't see those reports. Right. Okay. So you, it's a very collegiate approach. It is not designed to name and shame. The councils and boards in each state and territory will keep everything as confidential as is possible in order to protect the public. But the hospital, for example, or the employer, the area health service, whomever it might be, has a duty to notify the, um, the boards if there's been any breach in those conditions, for example. Mm. Right. So if one of the conditions is that they're breathalyzed and there's a positive um, uh, reading, the practitioner is obviously sent home via a taxi and um, the hospital is required to notify the regulator of that, that result. Um, so it, it, they can be very long and complex, the conditions, but our general advice is if this this will keep you safe it will keep patients safe and those conditions will slowly be taken away as you get better yeah thank you for clarifying that marie claire uh but you did mention that there is a difference between all the other states compared to western australia so for just briefly for our western australia mm -hmm. listeners what's the difference uh there is no requirement for a treating practitioner to report an impaired practitioner to the regulator, full stop. And they haven't changed that. So that would mean that if there was a notification, it would come from the employer yeah, rather but than it, the it, treating practitioner. So I'll just make it clear. There's no statutory requirement. It does not prevent them from doing so right. in best interests. Um, and our experience in Western Australia is um, that the reasonable treating practitioner if they were concerned, would make the notification yeah, okay. in everybody's best interest. It's simply that they have held on to that, that exemption. That's what the legislation says, but it certainly does not prevent practitioners from reporting um, doctors in the scenario I've just given. And certainly the evidence is that, that it doesn't preclude them from doing so appropriately. 
So what else should a junior doctor know about mandatory reporting? I mean, uh, so far we've talked about, you know, others making the report. Could the junior doctors themselves self-report if they were concerned about their own condition? Definitely. We would always encourage when our junior doctors especially reach out for help um, before we even get to making notifications. The first thing we want to know is, are you okay? Do you have a treating general practitioner or treating psychologist? Are you in the public hospital system and do you have access to employee assistance, so private and confidential counselling? Have you talked to your family and friends? Have you talked to close friends and colleagues? Very importantly, have you talked to your supervisor or a senior person at the hospital um, that you trust about these concerns? Because that's a really, really good place to start. But we would always, always encourage self-reporting when it's appropriate um, before it deteriorates to a point where you know, it's the director of medical services putting in the mm. notification, which comes back to, again, insight and, and feeling comfortable about talking about your mental health and well-being at work. And frequently, Dana, we receive um, queries from junior doctors where they have concerns about one of their colleagues that perhaps is partying really hard after shifts, even though they know they're on at six o'clock the next morning, they're just all over the place at work or um, they go on a break and they're slumped to sleep. They're uh, concerned that they're sort of catching them, making errors. Um, what do I do? Am I supposed to report them? What should I do? So frequently we, we talk through how to help your colleagues in that situation. And that comes back to, you know, all of the mental health um, advocacy that's going on at the moment in relation to are you okay and having feeling comfortable saying to somebody do you, do you need anything do you want to have a chat um, so we can talk um, our clients and all MDOs can talk through um, with junior doctors who have concerns about their mates at work and that's not necessarily other junior doctors it's nurses it's physios it's psychologists whomever um, dietitians you work so closely together when you're in, in hospitals that you, you do notice um, sometimes really subtle changes in, in behaviour. And that can just be snapping at nurses, for example, or pushing back on authority. So saying, no, I'm right and I know what I'm doing. Don't question me. They're red flags. So we can talk our junior doctors through when they're feeling they're, they're going down a slippery slope and equally if, a, if they've noticed a friend is heading down a slippery slope. And thankfully, our hospitals are really equipped now to assist, which is why we have EAP, which is why we have mentoring, which is why we have confidential services. It's why uh, medical defence organisations have invested so much in this space for doctors' health and wellbeing and and confidential help and anytime you ring your your MDO it's confidential you, your advice is is not shared with with anybody and certainly um, to make it very clear we we do not have any such requirement to make notifications about clients that would never ever happen so we just help navigate that situation they're they're the types of situations where we might say this is the point at which you should perhaps make a, a self-notification. It's always better that you notify, not 
someone else. And the times probably where we would guide practitioners in that way is, for example, um, if they've been charged with an offence. Uh, so if they've got a drink driving um, charge or an assault charge, again, that uh, section of the Act, Section 130 that I alluded to earlier, if there is a, a charge or a conviction, you are required to tell the regulator within seven days. So often we get called in that scenario. Um, but we would also generally, depending on the facts, be saying you need to let your employer know that this is coming and this is what's occurred so that you can get the support from work and the regulator will tell your hospital about that um, because frequently you might be on notice of suspension so they might invoke sections of the act which would require immediate what's called immediate action depending on the offence so that's where we would say a you've got a statutory obligation to tell ARPA and self-notify you don't want it coming from the police because the police will often make that notification to ARPA and uh, you certainly don't want your employer finding out via that route, i.e. APRA saying, well, by the way, we've restricted that doctor's practice because we've received this notification from the police. Our general advice, again, depending on the scenario, would be, okay, talk to me about who your supervisor is at work, what's the relationship, how's the culture in your workplace, we'll help you navigate how best to sit down with them and, and tell them what's happened and, and that you've got your MDO. Usually that's all the um, hospitals want to know. Have you told your MDO? Have you got support? Just let us know what we need to do to help you. I think we can uh, probably very succinctly, you know, summarise this as if in doubt, contact your MDO. Absolutely every time. And I will say the caveat with all this is every case turns on its facts. Um, this is all general advice. The ARPA website is full of resource for you um, to delve in if you so choose. But every single case is multifactorial and certainly every claim, every inquest, every investigation, it's the Swiss cheese model that um, I'm sure everybody is, is taught at university. It's, um, it's always multifactorial. There's always miscommunication. Um, there's so many um, factors, including human factors that contribute uh, to incidents or near misses or catastrophic events. Um, so it's best to get advice about your own situation that you find yourself in um, so that we can steer you in the right direction because one size certainly doesn't fit all. Exactly the same way as every patient that comes in to a hospital has to be treated completely individually based on um, your examinations and findings. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Marie-Claire. My pleasure. If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode. <laughs>